0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. All right, this morning our text, I want to read it to you. Uh, Remember, Jesus last week was in Cana, and he turned the water into wine. Then he left for Jerusalem and did some more signs. We'll look at that. And then he comes back to Cana. And this is what happens when he comes back. Now he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. And when he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he begged him to come down and heal his son who was about to die. So Jesus said to him, unless people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my child dies. And Jesus told him, go home, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set off for home. Now while he was on his way down, his slaves met him and told him, that his son was gonna live. So we asked, what time when his condition began to improve? They said yesterday, one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that it was the very time Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed along with his entire household. Jesus did this as his second miraculous sign when he turned from Judea to Galilee. So we're in a series called The Borderlands of Belief, and we're talking about belief and unbelief and looking at the dynamics of them. And I want to say a couple things by way of summary a little bit. uh, Two things about belief and unbelief. First of all, both of them require faith. Whether you believe that the world is just a material thing itself, as we talked about last week, you might just believe that the world is contained, it's only material. Uh, or you believe there's something outside of the world and something metaphysical, something personal uh, versus something non-personal. If You just believe in matter. Uh, but we said that either side of these, even if you deny the existence of God, Uh, you're forced to give ultimacy to matter. Um, That means you believe matter is all there is, and some people believe matter has always existed. But here's the facts. There's no way to prove that. We have no example of any kind of matter that appears to have arrived on its own or be self-sustaining. So you can't prove it. That means it's an act of faith to believe it. In fact, uh, in seven types of atheism, uh, John Gray talks about atheism as nearly always some type of ma- uh, uh, is nearly always a type of materialism, which means you believe that this is just all there is. If you're an atheist, That's 21st century an atheist, because there's old a- older atheisms and newer ones. Uh, so it can't be proven. There's no example of it. In fact, he goes on to say this, and I think it's great. Now, he's an atheist, and he talks about all the seven types of atheism, and he blows holes in atheism the same way he does in religion and, and Christianity. But his point at the end of the day, this is what he says. Much of what, a, what passes for scientific knowledge is as open to doubt as the miraculous events that feature in traditional faiths. That's just honesty. So the first thing is they both require faith. The second thing is they both affect very much the way you live. If you live just in this world right here, you've got to face the same issues the people over here face, like, for instance, the problem of evil. By the way, it doesn't matter which side of faith you're on, it's a problem for everybody. Evil's a problem for everyone. But no matter which side you live on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect the way you live if you're a materialist. If this is all there is. Or if you live on this side where you believe there's a God and you believe that the, uh, there's a, uh, some, something personal in the world. But here's the truth. Both of us have to share the same space. We both share the same realities. We both live similar kinds of lives. We, both, we all seek for meaning and purpose. Uh, we all seek for some moral compass. We have ideas in our heads about what's right and what isn't. But the fact is all moral values are matters of faith. You can't scientifically prove any moral value that you have. So that means you have to take it by faith. So we're all operating by faith. Uh, Sam Harris is one, if you've read him or if you've heard him very much, he's doing his best uh, to, like other uh, new atheists, to connect through science, good and evil. He wants there to be a science of good and evil. And here's what John Gray says about that. It's not by accident that neither he nor any of the new atheists promotes tolerance as a central value. If ethics can be a science, there is no need for toleration. That's an important line for people in our culture. In fact, all these versions of scientific ethics are fraudulent, and not only because the sciences they invoke are bogus. Science cannot close the gap between facts and values. No matter how much it may advance, scientific inquiry cannot tell you which ends to pursue or how to resolve conflicts between them. They'll never be able to do that, which means we're all acting on faith. And I think that's important when you consider that religion, religious belief, gets sort of a bad rap about leaving reason behind. And those who exalt reason forget how much faith they need to believe what they believe as well. So um, reason itself is based on antecedent faith. So where does that leave us? Well, you have to test these things. You, what we said at the beginning of the series, you got to take your beliefs and your unbeliefs and make sure you can live with them. Make sure you can live consistently with them. Um, John Grace talking about Nietzsche in one of his chapters on atheism. Nietzsche is the most well-known atheist. He is certainly the most read. But R- Nietzsche really struggled with this, throwing God out and what that meant. Because he said, if you throw God out, you have to throw out moral meaning as well. And And this is what John Gray says about Nietzsche, and I think really accurately describes it. If you don't throw out moral meaning with God, and you try to smuggle meaning in, in other words, you're a materialist, and you're trying to find everything you need right here in just this reality, ignoring this one, Every once in a while, you'll find yourself smuggling in meaning from out here into here. And he says, if you do that, this is what Nietzsche said. If you try to smuggle in meaning, he says, that's bad faith. That's bad faith. And then he writes this. John Gray says of it. According to Nietzsche, that shouldn't go untested. Uncontested. Which means if that's what you're doing, then you ought to stop and really think about what you really believe. Because there may be some underlying motivations for not wanting to believe. Now, Seren Kierkegaard told a parable, and I read this in Yancey's book on rumors. He says, uh, he told a parable, and I think illustrates this well, about a rich man riding in a lighted carriage, driven by a peasant who sat behind the horse in the cold and dark outside And precisely because he sat near the artificial light inside, the rich man missed the panorama of stars outside, a view gloriously manifest to the peasant. Now that story meant something to me when I read it. It was a great visual because Yancey uses it to sort of say that in modern times, uh, science has cast more light on the created world and it's cast shadows over the metaphysical world, over the invisible world, if you will. Now, as I've read that and read this story, I, I get attached now after, after reading Joe Minnick's book, Enduring Divine Absence, um, that sort of inside the carriage, you're insulated and you're safe. And we've somehow learned to manufa- manufacture our own light. Uh, and he says in his book that technological advances have somehow, he says this, shaped have shaped to perceive shaped us to perceive reality the way the technological order that we tacitly imbibe every day in its psyche-shaping act of reducing the real in all our practical involvements with it to the manipulable, observable, and visible order. So inside that carriage, you know, you make your own light. And he points out the observation that this guy's rich and he has been able to uh, overcome a lot of the circumstances of life. And so we experience the world not as being subject to it when we're in the carriage. This is is extremely important because he says, an aversion to metaphysics. Get this, this is a really interesting thought you'll have to meditate on. An aversion to metaphysics metaphysics is prominent in well-to-do eras and nations. In fact, he goes on to say it's mostly white, well-to-do phenomena. Because you have figured out how to manipulate life. If if it's hot outside, you go in AC. You get out of the way. You know how to deal. We've learned how to manipulate even nature to some degree. We've learned how to get ahead of it, to win it. And so we don't feel subject to the world. And technology is constantly getting us to forget what is really real and how helpless we really are. In fact, he goes on to say this, to put it bluntly, the world is a world for me. I do not find in myself a big mysterious world suffused with agencies to which I'm subject and around which I have to learn to navigate. I find in myself a world almost entirely, here's a great word, toolified, a world of my own subjective agency before an increasingly silent cosmos. So he says, We live in this bubble. But then he writes this. He says, everything, uh, every now and then, something will penetrate that bubble. So if I can keep the analogy, something will rattle that carriage that we're riding in. And he offers two things, and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, Love and death. He says, these confront us as personal forces. They're not easily manipulated. And they render us passive. Now that brings us to the second sign. How can John help us in this scenario? Well, I love this text. Let me show you the whole text. Because I want you to to know in this deal that there's a sort of uh, progression into, uh, into this man's crisis. He starts off as the royal official. And I just get, you're just seeing the whole text. You're not designed to read it. I'm just trying to show you the movement in the text. Movement in the text is he goes from being a royal official to being the man to being a father. And you can see it just gets deeper and deeper into the psyche of humanity. He goes from being the royal official and you can picture him as the guy with the light in the carriage. You know, he's probably got a pretty good handle on life and reality. But then he's described as the man. That's anthropos. That's a word John uses to describe humanity. So he's not only just a guy himself in a carriage necessarily. He's also representative of all mankind. We're going to learn something about ourselves from being in him. And then third, he's a dad. And that changes everything. The moment you become a parent, your world just changes. Your perspective changes. And we're going to see him go through this progression. And look what John says, how he starts the story. So, he comes, Jesus comes back to Galilee, goes to Cana, where he turns the water to wine. That's important. We'll come back to it at the end. In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. And when he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come down and heal his son, who was about to die. This is John sort of filling us in on the story. Now, Listen to this. John creates the scenario. The father doesn't speak yet. But here's what we know about him. He has sought Jesus out because his carriage has been rattled. Now, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He's never seen him before. He's going on the same kind of information you and I have when we make any decision in life. We do a little homework. We, we trust other people's testimony. We hear things. Then we decide if it's worth trusting in if it's worth taking a risk if it's worth investigating that's what we all do and how many times have we gone on someone else's word to trust them and that's what this man does he realizes based on what he's heard Jesus would be worth seeking out this is a 17 mile walk from Capernaum to Cana no question his wife told him to go Get out of here. Go find that man. Okay? Now, I've told you before that what you hear about Jesus and you think about the offer, that the possibility and the offer of what he's offering is worth the investigation. It's worth the curiosity. And even though this man is not fully clear at all about who Jesus is, his world has so narrowed And here's what we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn that his crisis is very real. But it's even greater than he thinks it is. It's greater than he thinks it is. Now here's the beautiful thing about this parable. a number of just tremendous observations about the way John presents this for us. Because Jesus is the first one to actually speak. John has sort of summarized this man's life, but Jesus is the first one to speak when the man comes to him. So in the dialogue... What Jesus says casts a shadow over the whole conversation. Jesus says to him, Unless people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So Jesus is talking to him, but he is referring to everyone. This man, in some way, shape, or form, is going to reflect all humanity. That's why in the text he will become the man. And here's what Jesus is going to try to say to all of us. He's going to say, Reason is not enough. You can search me out based on testimony. You can hear for yourselves. You can hear about it. You can come pursue. You can dot I's and cross T's. But it'll never be enough. That's what we've been learning. So faith is more than reason, but it's not less. Now, it sounds like Jesus being a little harsh. I mean, if you're the guy with the son who's dying, you don't want to be the representative of all humanity. And hear this, What sounds a little harsh. But actually, Jesus is being far more compassionate than you can imagine, and I want to prove that to you. One commentator I read, Michael's, he says this, it's not a rebuke as much as he's leading him to faith. How is he leading him to faith in this, in those words? Well, remember what signs are. Signs sort of point you beyond the miracle itself to the person. So this man is so caught up in his crisis, it's very possible that the sign will mean more to him than Jesus himself. And Jesus is going to say that's the worst thing that can happen to a person is that he gets enamored with power misses the person. And that's why Jesus is constantly gonna point out from this moment on in this series, the limits and the dangers of signs. It's easy to miss the revelation. So a sign is sort of a divine revelation that leads. I like this, uh, Burge gives this definition. A sign is a divine revelation that leads to enlightened faith in God. I like the enlightened because I picture the man in the carriage. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. What is happening here? What is Jesus trying to say about this statement? Well, let me take you back just a couple of steps further. When Jesus gets back from Jerusalem before this encounter happens, here's what happens. So now you'll know why Jesus said what he said. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people, many people believed in his name because they saw the signs. So they, they did exactly what Jesus is saying in, in this story. But notice what he says. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. This is an amazing verse. Because he knew all people and he did not need anyone to testify about man. There's our anthropos. This is our guy who represents everyone. So Jesus is talking about a specific group of people in Jerusalem who who believe in him because of the signs, but he doesn't believe in them. That's the same word, believe. It's a word play. They believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. In other words, he didn't meet them in the middle because their faith. They didn't really trust him. They didn't see the person. They just were enamored with the power. And Jesus says, in this comment here, it's not just the people in Jerusalem. It's all mankind. All men. He knows what is in all men. Something in men, is, something in us as humans is broken. That's what anthropos is, humanity. Something in us is broken and makes it very difficult to see past the sign. That's John's point. And so, there's this image of the lights are all out. Remember in John chapter one when Jesus says, but then Jesus comes in with this light. So we're working with this sort of manifestation. There's no kind of darkness, let me just say this, there's no kind of darkness like the guy in the carriage who has enough light to see and thinks he can see everything. There's no darkness, there's no blindness like the guy who thinks he sees and can't. And with our manufactured light, we think we see, but we can't see. But John 1 says, Jesus is the true light who comes in the world and lights every man. But that light is really hard to take. We prefer our light. His light's hard to take. And Jesus gets underneath of it. We struggle seeing reality and Jesus shines a light on it like nobody else. What is it that makes us long for the sign? Jesus is trying to penetrate to that. See, there are kind of different kinds of belief. There are stages of belief. And John says the worst stage is the one that demands a sign. Because underneath the demand is a sort of defiance. There's a self-sufficiency. There's a lack of humility. There's self-interest. It's all about me. That's what's broken in us. And so when the light gets shined on us by Jesus, it's too hard to take. It's too harsh of a reality to take. It reveals something about us. And so John is saying, remember what he says in John 3? We'll see it in a minute. Men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. That's an important line when you consider what happens. So there's a certain kind of belief, watch this, there's a certain kind of belief that gets past the rational, past the sign to true faith, to saving faith. Now, you guys will just love this connection. You love this connection because do you know, this is the end of chapter two. What happens in chapter three? Who do we meet immediately? Anybody know John chapter three? Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, look what it says about Nicodemus. Now there was a certain man why does he call him a man? Because he just used the word man in the verse before to describe humanity. Out of this humanity comes this one man, this certain guy. He's a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. This is the first Nick at night. This is the first one. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus sees something beyond the sign, but notice how he approaches Jesus very cautiously. Why at night? Because it's safer. Because approaching the light that's gonna reveal something about me is so difficult that even Nicodemus, who was a spiritual guy, a religious guy, a devout man, was afraid of what that light would show and Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, I know why you're here at night, because men love darkness because their deeds are evil. They don't want to be seen. So sort of the lowest level of unbelief, if you will, is the one that's demanding of a sign. So Jesus is going to say to this father in our story, and he's going to say it to this man and to all men, I have more than physical life to offer you. I have eternal life to offer you. I care about your whole family. More than that, John three sixteen, this same chapter right here. For God so loved the what? The world. I care about the whole world. And Jesus is trying to tell this man, I wish you could see past this crisis. Because there's even something, there's even a greater crisis. But it's hard to see. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what this man's going to do. Is he going to be like Nicodemus and step out? Or is he going to be just like everybody else? All he wants is the sign. Well, this is what the man says to Jesus. At first, you're not sure. He says, sir, the official, he can't get out of his head. He can't get out of his head, his son. He says, come down before my child dies. Now, this is the word child. Now, John has just used the word son in the sort of the indirect discourse. This man's son. Well, when this father brings up his son, he says, my child. This is a different Greek word. In fact, there's three Greek words for children in this passage. But this is the most emotional. This is the one that a father or a parent feels toward their kid. This is like him saying, my baby boy, my baby girl is dying. That has rattled my cage. I don't know what you're talking about. This is all I can think of. Now, I want to say something to you, because Minnick said, love and death rattle your cage. And the truth of the matter is, they're not separate. They're actually very close together. Until you really love someone, you're not fearful of death in the same way. Have you noticed that? Uh, In Mystery of Marriage, he talks about death. It's just such an amazing chapter. But listen to this. It's probably no accident, he says, if the point at which we wake up to the reality of death corresponds with the time when we begin to become capable of mature love. Isn't that true? Uh, I love it. He says this. Marriage intensifies the darkness of death's shadow. Because you love your spouse, you don't want to lose him. And then surely having a child makes it darker still. Nothing rattles the cage. And then he goes on to say this. Death becomes a, more of a fearsome foe in a family than, when, than in just an individual's life. And he says, a family knows all of this instinctively and that is why there is no individual, no unit, no organization on earth that is more protective of human life and so more agonized by death than the family. So the truth of the matter is love and death, they go together, you can't separate them. Death is more horrifying because we love so deeply. And that's where this father is. So, here's what Jesus says to him and I love it. Go home, now just stop there for a second. There's a semicolon there. Just slow you down a little bit. Isn't that a great line? This is Jesus. You're like, Jesus, man, you really are not having a good day. You're not having a good day. You have sort of rebuked the whole world because of this guy. And then you tell him to go home. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is testing him. Jesus is going to test him. Go home. Your son will live. I'm going to grant you your request. Go home. This is almost Jesus saying, I guess you're just like everybody else focused on yourself focused on your own crisis but not even in tuned or aware of the even larger crisis in your life go home i'll let your son live and here's what the man does and you don't know what he's going to do and i love right here here's the man Same as Nicodemus, the man, humanity, someone steps out of the crowd of people who just want signs, and look what he does. He believes the word that Jesus spoke to him. This is is another level of belief. First belief, just like signs. This guy's gonna trust what Jesus said, and he's actually gonna do what Jesus told him to do, and he's gonna go home. This is what real faith is. This is what genuine saving faith and trust look like. I'm just, I'm just going to trust what you say. You better believe everybody is shocked. Because this is this guy saying, "You mean you're not going to come with me?" My, my wife really, 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 really wanted you to come too. You're going to send me on my way with a story to tell? Well, I, he said, and I, he's going to get slapped (laughs) by mama. And Jesus says, no, you're going to have to trust me. I'm going to put you in that place. I'm going to see. So he sets off for home. And this is, this is, if you want to take Jesus home, if you want to know what coming home faith looks like, it's seeing without, it's believing without seeing. Isn't that how we started the series? It's believing without seeing. This guy's going to be on a 17-mile walk, and he's going to demonstrate remarkable faith, faith that you and I can learn from right now. He's going to teach us something about faith, a 17-mile walk, and Jesus is going to sort of put himself between the request and the healing itself so that this man had to decide to trust him to walk home without proof, And you better believe that's a humiliating walk. That's a self-reflective walk. That's the kind of light Jesus shines. It makes you, it forces you at the gut level to consider all things about yourself, about reality, and about God. And this man is in that moment. And it's a humiliating place to be. So Burge, one commentator, says, you know, our root problem, we have pride and we're selfish and we demand from God. He says the root problem is our fallen capacity to receive and accept things from God. It's just really hard for us to do it, he says. We will accept the things that benefit us us directly, that heal us or profit us, but a divine revelation, a divine sign that discloses who we are and who God really is. And then he uses this imagery. Divine signs are like light, bright light, painful, because they disclose everything hidden in the dark. Jesus says, just put this man in the dark, in that dark spot where maybe at one time in your life you were so confident, all of a sudden a light shines on you and you can't believe what you see. Here's here are some observations about faith for this man right here in the middle before we finish this story. Here's the first one. Faith is hard for all men. Faith is hard for all people. It's not easy for any of us. You ever, you ever thought to yourself, boy, I wish I could have their faith. As if faith were some sort of special gift, you're born with it or you got a certain personality that makes you more gullible somehow. That's not true at all. This kind of faith is difficult for everybody. Saving faith. People believe, but saving faith is like literally stepping into a bright light and letting it shine on who you really are deep inside. That's not easy faith. The other kind of faith is easy to have. This kind of faith requires honesty, humility, dependence, and accountability. It's a place of light, and it's tough to handle so that's the first thing about it. it's hard for all of us the second thing is faith is not without doubts how confident do you think this man was going home He's probably going home and he's got scenarios playing over in his head right i should have stayed with him i should have grabbed him picked him up you know farmers carried that boy and get him home with me And what is my wife going to say when I walk in the door? I don't know if I just made the biggest mistake of my life. What have I done? I'm going to walk 35, 34 miles for nothing. I don't know how it was. All I know is you remember the story in Mark 9? It's very similar where the man comes to Jesus and he says, please heal my son. And Jesus says to him, if you believe, I will. The man says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is what we learn about faith right here. This is faith. I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but I'm going the way he told me to go, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm trusting him. That's as far as I know. It's not perfect faith. If you're waiting for perfect faith, like faith that has no doubts in it, you'll never have that. You'll never have that in anywhere in your life. You'll never have that. So you're being unfair to yourself to imagine that you can demand that in this relationship any more than you could in the other one. The important thing is that, you're, is that you're taking your doubt and your unbelief to him. Doesn't have to be perfect faith. Now, Tim Keller, I think, handles this. I think I've heard him explain it a couple of times, and it's worth mentioning. Some of us think that there's got to be this, that faith is some of this pure psychological certainty. Okay, And he says it's not the purity of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith that saves you. Now follow me on this because he gives this illustration about you falling off a cliff. If you're falling off a cliff and there's a branch sticking out and you say to yourself perhaps you're a person who says I don't think that branch is going to hold me. Okay, You know things about yourself and you know things about branches hanging out of a cliff and you're like not going to hold me. Are you still going to grab it? You're still going to grab it. You might be falling off that cliff and in some moment of sanity, you think, that, that branch is going to do exactly what I need you could have confidence. Either way, it's irrelevant. The most important thing about the moment is not how much faith you have, it's whether the branch is strong enough to hold your behind. That's all. That's what we're doing when we come to faith in Christ. We're not bringing perfect, 100% faith. That's impossible to find. All I know is I know where to take my faith. I know, where to, I know where to put my unbeliefs. I know where to put my doubts. I take them to him, and even though I don't understand, and even though it's not perfectly clear, I'm trusting him. Because like Peter said, what else do I have? I'm trusting And so that's the second thing. The third thing is that faith, and everybody who's ever trusted Christ knows this, faith actually becomes sight. It's sort of the the way it is in life in general, but especially in spiritual things. Trust actually reveals. It's like there's a certain kind of information you're never gonna get until you trust. Now, that's true in human life. You don't know if the doctor's 100% great until you trust him. You don't know until you go under the knife. But you gotta go. And then you come out and you go, ah, ah." That's the way it is with Jesus, too. You put your trust in him, and then you go, ah, man, I see it. Faith becomes sight. That's why John says, blessed are those who, who don't see and they believe. Because it takes some belief to see. Because we've been learning in this text that you can see and not believe. That's the movement of the passage. Notice. So here he is on his journey. He's on his way down. Slaves met him some portion of the way and told him that his son was gonna live. So he asked them, what time did this... Did his condition improve? And they told him, it was yesterday, one o'clock, the fever left him. The father realized that it was the very time Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in his entire family. This is fascinating, what happens here. So here's what I love about the story. You see the direction of faith and the movement of faith. You see him moving in a direction even though he can't fully see. He never gets home. The story never ever has him encounter his son again. And so just like the initial sort of uh, search, he had to trust other people's opinion of Jesus before he met him, and then he had to trust Jesus' opinion on the way home. And he had to trust the testimony of other people. Here his slaves run up to him, and they meet him. It's like they can't wait. They meet him in the journey. He never sees his son in this entire story. So he's trusting the testimony. And this is like sort of a divine gift, if you will. This is how faith becomes sight. I love the idea that he never makes it home, that God sort of eases his angst by sending the messengers to him so that he can know, he can see, he can have it before he arrives at 100% proof. Do you see that? This is God's way of saying, well, I didn't see it, but I trusted it. And in that moment, something happens. It's the encounter. The evidence made him seek Jesus out, but it's the encounter that changes his moment because then he has this thought process. He reflects back on Jesus. In other words, he's not, thank God my son is happy and I'm moving on. No, 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 no. He has to go back now to remember who he has talked to, who was just talking to him, and just who Jesus really is. And he moves past the sign. Because they told him his son would live And His first thought was Jesus. All of a sudden here, he sees him differently than just a miracle worker. This is an incredible moment. Because he realizes this is not just about his son. That's why they say, that's why it's his Father. It's almost as if not just physically but spiritually they're pointing out that at the deepest level this man has figured out who Jesus is. He was a royal official. Then he was the man. Now he's the dad. And it's about more than his son. It's about his whole family because they all come to believe. It's, it's about more than physical life. It's about eternal life. This is what faith in Christ looks like. You encounter him without being there without him being there. You encounter him without him being there. That's the point of John's message. In fact, John has all these sort of strange moments in the book of John where Jesus is absent. You're like, where is he? Why isn't he here? And you realize he doesn't have to be there for you to know him and encounter him, which is John's message overall. You don't have to see to believe. You see who he is. And all of a sudden, this man realizes he is what I need more than a healed son. That's where you know your faith has really taken a leap. I need him more than I need a healed son. That's true faith. I need him more than I need stuff and signs. He's so much more than I thought he was. And the point is if you don't see Jesus properly then you don't you won't ever see what you really need. That's the problem with the selfish design or desire for signs. It's so self-centered that you'll never see what you really need. That's why Jesus says that to the man. Now, let's close with this final thought about this text. And I want to alert your attention to another thing when you look at the whole text. The first thing you remember is that he talks, he brings up the wine. The fact that he brings it up here, which rarely happens. The sign before gets mentioned. Tells us something that John wants you to have in your mind as you go through this passage. And what we learned in that one was there's a moment Jesus is going to die. You got a celebrative moment, but Jesus sort of casts a shadow of about his death. There's an hour coming when I'm going to give my life on a cross. And so we got Jesus's death there. And then you come to this image here, sort of in conjunction with it. And you see this phrase, your son is going to live. Your son is going to live. And you can just hear the whole framework of John's gospel and how many times he puts the word son for Jesus and live. Look at this. Uh, Right here. The one who believes in the son, this this is the next chapter, chapter three. The one who believes in the son has life. The one who rejects the son will not see life. And so this little three There's repetitive phrase, sort of like a refrain in the text. It's as if Jesus is saying to the man and John is saying to the readers, your son will live because my son will live. That's what God is saying. My son is about to do something for you that's far greater than just healing your son. And if anyone understands the father's angst, isn't it God? who sent his son to die? Isn't that one of the wonders of Christianity? There's no other God in religion who has come here to put himself in the place of a father's love. Jesus did. Because Jesus knew he was gonna have to die and he knew that that's what is needed the most for the greatest crisis of that man's life for his family, for himself, and for the whole world. This is the kind of life that death can't destroy. And Jesus was trying to get that man to see, saving your physical life is not the top priority. I'll close with a comment by Mike Mason in his book, The Mystery of Marriage. He says, to loathe death is really to loathe its sting, which is sin. Sin is what brings death. And sin, in turn, is separation from God so that when people fear and despise death, what they really despise, if only they could know it, is the thought of separation from him. You take your worst separation anxiety. Who couldn't you live without? And you take that anxiety and you trace it back to its ultimate. It's our separation from God that has caused all of that separation anxiety to begin with. And somebody needs to solve that problem. And that's what Jesus came to do. By dying on the cross, he wipes out sin. And by rising from the dead, makes a way for every single one of us to come into the light and find that life. I want you to bow your heads. Father, with an incredible story, so much to learn here. And I wonder if there's someone sitting in here waiting for perfect faith. And it's very possible that you've already come upon them. You've already met them. They're not even, they haven't even fully arrived yet, but they're sensing you. Oh, God. I just pray with all my heart that you'll That you'll open their eyes to see even though it's hard to see. Even though it's a painful process. We have nowhere else to go for the most ultimate thing in our lives. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.